Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me again today. I'm Marilyn Harris with Hard at Work, and we're about creating an impactful legacy. And my guest today is Melissa, and we're um, together um, being doulas um, and very aspects of it. And uh, I'm pleased to have Melissa on my show because we are both in, in tune of creating the impactful legacy. So welcome, Melissa. Tell me Hi. how you got kind of decided or called to do the work about being a doula? Well, um, I had never heard of an end of life doula. Didn't even know what they were, but um, I am uh, uh, a sideline in my life. I'm an athlete, I'm a triathlete. So I swim and I bike and I run. And I always say to people that I, uh, I always gravitate towards my weakness. You know, they always say, train to your weakness, whatever your weakest sport is. And I think it carries through other parts of life as well. So I, I'm a terrible swimmer and I wanted to do an Ironman. So I really focused on swimming and, you know, so that I could cover the distance to do that. And then in life, generally, um, I'm a, a 20 year cancer survivor. Didn't really think I was going to make it. And um, uh, so I was, you know, terrified of death, like a lot of people mm -hmm. in our Western world. And mm -hmm. uh so I gravitated towards that because it was something that I was uh, afraid of. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll briefly, I'll tell you my, uh, my cancer story is pretty brief, but um, so in uh, 2001, um, <clears throat> my husband and I both were working in Washington uh, for Congress and we had a young son and um, uh, I, uh, on 9-11, my husband was in a human ring around the Capitol. He was in dignitary protection, law enforcement, protecting the, part of the Capitol Police. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had to run home and stand on the bridge watching the Pentagon burn. <clears throat> and then a few days, a week or two after that, I was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer. <clears throat> it was pretty aggressive. Didn't really think I was going to make it, like I said. And then mm. a few weeks after that, while I was waiting for my surgery, they found anthrax in the basement of my office building uh, uh. where the, the post office was. So we went from terrorism, the Pentagon, we lived like about a, a mile and a half from the Pentagon. So we, mm -hmm. had the Pentagon, we had terrorism, cancer, and anthrax all like within a three and a half week period. And I was certain I was going to die. I, I just wasn't sure how. And so it was a pretty scary time. Mm. And uh, I always consider myself, I'm very grateful that I'm still here. Yeah. That, that would be totally scary yeah. you know, because it's the unknown, right? And, and also overwhelming. I mean, it was just yeah. not possible to process any of it because as soon as you started to process something, something else horrible was happening. So, right. Um, like, yeah. it's like, Okay, you can stop now. <laughs> I've got enough stuff on my plate right now. Yeah. Yeah. So and, cool. you know, we've done pretty well. So, you know, we've, I've done pretty well and I'm okay. And uh, I've had 20 more years. So, I, you know, I, I used to negotiate with God a lot. Yeah. Uh, my son grow up and a lot of things like that. And um, so uh, I feel like my wish has been granted. And all I ever ask is that when it now is that when it's my time, then I'm ready to go. Because mm -hmm. my experience mm -hmm. with people that are nearing the end of life is even if they wish they'd lived longer or whatever, usually as it gets really, really close, they start, you start to see signs that they even actually say the words that, you know, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, during your cancer, um, what things like, was there anything spiritual you learned from that or did anything come out of that, out of that spiritually wise for you? Or is it just 
learning to deal with the dis discomfort of, and disease of cancer. So for me, being a triathlete, being an endurance event, uh, athlete, I just looked at cancer treatment as just one more endurance event that I have to get through. Okay. So I felt probably pretty uniquely qualified <laughs> to, to suffer through that. Um, I went to work pretty much every single day, uh, except unless I was in the hospital mm -hmm. or just right out of the hospital. So um, we had uh, October 17th was when the anthrax uh, attack was in our building and the building was closed down for a while. Mm -hmm. So when I had my surgery, we were kind of working from home. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really out of, I was literally even in the hospital answering my phones. Yeah. And I was a communications director for the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan office that deals with everything in Congress that has to do with the budget. And so members and senators send their constituents when they have questions to us. Sometimes I'd get three, 400 phone calls a day. So, wow. and I think for most people, when they have a cancer or other types of terminal mm -hmm. diseases, or they think might be terminal diseases, um, what they really crave is normalcy in their lives. Mm -hmm. They want to continue living their lives as normally as they can for as long as they can, at least. Mm -hmm. And I know I certainly felt that way. So um, I went to work every day because most of my work was done online or on the phone mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, people uh, calling me on the phone didn't know that I had no hair or that I looked gray from chemo or whatever. Right. Um, and I could empathize with them. I, this was uh, during the debate in Congress over the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. and they were changing the way uh, doctors were doing outpatient oncology uh, uh, chemo sessions and stuff for their patients in their offices. And people would call me and cry to me on the phone. Oh, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to have cancer. And I'm sitting there like, yeah. <laughs> and I, <do>. so <laughs> I did know, I did know. And so I felt, uh, I felt that it, it helped me appreciate all of that better. Um, a lot of people join support groups when they're uh, having, going through cancer or things like that. I, um, a few months before that, I had started, joined a, a group in our church mm -hmm. um, because my husband is, uh, was Catholic and we had agreed to raise our children as Catholic. And I didn't know the first thing about being Catholic. And right. so I was taking these classes and that group of people kind of became my support group. And it was, uh, it was a spiritual type of an experience in a lot of ways. And we like, we went to the Basilica, the big, huge Basilica in Washington and did a lot of things about breath. And I learned a lot of different things, even about religion that probably apply to other religions as well, that I didn't really appreciate how chanting and music and breath all were early ways of uh, men, women uh, learn to manage stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, a lot of chanting, that rhythmic kind of breathing or singing is, is a stress control and, uh, and, and breathing controls can be also. So I, I learned a lot about that type of thing, which I find fascinating. So, right. You know. Yeah. No, I could um, really hear um, the what you learned and how it really helped you. And you're right. You know, I had a gal on the show um, last, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and her and her husband just talk about breathing, learning to breathe properly really distresses you and, and how they keep um, teaching it. And so, yeah, I can hear you as you're saying chanting and breathing and really helps distress 
you and probably helps, I'm sure, not just two people in the world, but it would help the world if they just stopped. Everyone. So I coach um, kids in triathlon, swim, bike and run. I run a school-based program in Northern Virginia uh, in elementary school. So with third, fourth and fifth graders. And then one of the first things I teach them at the beginning of the program is diaphragmatic breathing, Mm. which is what we teach women when we're having babies, which is what we teach opera singers. So they really want to get down there and belt it out. And diaphragmatic breathing actually has the ability to lower your heart rate, calm your central nervous system. Mm -hmm. And I teach this to kids right out of the gate. You know, fall off the bike. Don't worry about it. We're all either two kinds of people, those who have fallen off their bikes and those who are going to fall off their bikes and whatever it is um, in life. And I have found even coming out of surgery when I'm not even conscious or like, as soon as I'm like the slightest bit alert, I I feel my body automatically. I start diaphragmatic breathing because I've kind of trained myself to do that, to calm down whenever I'm stressed and you can, it can become almost an, uh, an automatic response to stress, I think. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about your life as a triathlon uh, person and you're teaching it and tell me all about that. Cause to me, that sounds like your legacy. <laughs> well, you know, so I, I, I went to college during Watergate. I studied journalism. I lived in DC. I was, a, I, I knew I was going to be a writer from a very young age. My mother was an English teacher and writing came easily to me. And so uh, I, I, uh, someone told me, suggested I take a class in journalism at college and I just fell in love with it. I knew right in the, my first class in the first five minutes, this is what I was gonna do. Mm-hmm. And Congress was so much fun because you have 400 plus members of Congress and a hundred senators and thousands of staff people. And I didn't have to sit at a desk all day. I was running around <laughs> and um, the budget, the budget in Washington is everything. So yeah. I, I covered environmental stuff for a long time, but I was in like one building covering just two or three or four stories. Whereas when you cover the budget, it's everything. And mm-hmm. so it's never boring. And uh, I did that for a long time. Uh, I worked in different capacities in the news business and doing news products. And, and I really, really loved it. Um, mm-hmm. As I got older, uh, I didn't want to run around quite so much when I had kids and I was an older mom. And uh, um, I ended up, I went out to California for a brief period of time, took a job out there. It didn't really work out, came back and ended up in the budget office. And um, I had always had this dream of going to Hawaii and doing the Ironman. Mm. And so uh, back when they used to have a lottery, they don't have one anymore for people that aren't fast and can qualify. Yeah. But back in for many years, decades, actually, they had a lottery and I submitted my name in the lottery and my, you have to write up your story. So I wrote about where I worked and what I did and my involvement in triathlon and governance in triathlon. And uh, anyway, I, I was got a, a slot to go to Hawaii and do the Ironman. So I was celebrating my five years of surviving cancer mm-hmm. in Hawaii and was just like a dream come true. And at the big dinner the night before the race, uh, the, the CEO of Ironman said, you know, the average age of uh of Ironman athletes is getting older, the sport's getting old, and we need people to go back and bring young people into the sport and show them how much fun it is and get going. So I went home. And a couple of weeks later, my son came home from school in third grade and said, Mom, look, I'm going to run a 5k and (laughs) wave this girls on the run flyer at me. And I had to explain to him that he wasn't anatomically qualified. 
And I'm pre-Title IX. I was not allowed to run past the half-court mark in basketball. You know, I watched Joan Benoit run the first marathon. The fact that my eight-year-old son was being told that this was a gender-distinguishing program in third grade, I just was not happy with that. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to try to stop them, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to start a triathlon program Mm -hmm. in the school, which I did. They told me it never worked, couldn't do it. Boys and girls couldn't train together. Um, (laughs) If it wasn't for COVID, this would be our 18th year. Wow. uh, We're one of the first school-based programs in the country and certainly the longest going. We've won all kinds of awards. And so COVID really shut us down. And I really, I thought we were done for good. And just Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I got permission to start up again for this year. And I only had a few days to get it going. And we've got over 20, 25 kids in the program right now. I'm planning our race event for June and really, really excited because uh, triathlon is uh, uh, like program management. It's like time management. If you Mm. teach people how they can train for biking, train for running, train for swimming, and still do their life or their jobs or their schoolwork, they learn from a young age how to manage their time, which is a real challenge for most kids. And also- Training in the morning before school really calms the nerves down, especially for little boys. So they Mm -hmm. can be much more attentive in class in the mornings. The teachers always say, oh, it's triathlon season. That's so great because kids (laughs) will pay attention. Uh, They're calmer if they exercise in the morning before school. And and as a culture, we don't do very much of that. So anyway, so that's how I got that started. And I, um, I, I bankrolled most of it because I was working for Congress and you're not allowed to take money from, you know, outside sources and have to do yeah. all these rules. And so for many years, I just did my work and I ran my triathlon program and I felt like I was giving them a life sport. Certainly it helped me in my life. It mm-hmm. helped me recover from cancer. It kept me strong. Um, you know, I'm pretty old now. I, I don't do that much racing now, but I still run. I still bike. I still swim a little. And mm-hmm. so, um, I felt like it saved my life in a lot of ways. And my husband, and I always like to say, you know, we go to church and we go to God's church, which is, you know, outdoors. Yeah. yeah. I always say I do my best thinking, have had my best ideas, everything when I'm in the middle of a long run or a long ride where I can just get into, into mm-hmm. my head a little bit. And so, you know, that's, that's really, uh, you know, what I've done a lot. I, I still uh, am in touch in some ways. I still have a, a foothold in the news business. I still, I write a tax blog for a, tax company. I, I write letters for big le- uh, uh, little reports on different tax things for their clients. And uh, it that I hadn't done anything in the journalism, serious journalism world for about six or seven years. And I recently last year was asked to start it up again. And I have found that it has really sharpens my mind. Mm-hmm. Something that I was losing by not keeping engaged somehow intellectually in something that was a little more taxing than just like, you know, reading the newspaper or right. you know, a website. So I, I'm glad that I'm back doing that. And then during the pandemic, I, uh, you know, discovered uh, doula givers and um, Suzanne O'Brien, who is an amazing force of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, she's incredible to have developed this entire program. It's, uh, it's really incredible. And so I, all I want to do is help. And mm-hmm. um, I, I'm, I am helping with uh, uh, some media relations and mm-hmm. um, trying to help promote what we're doing. I, I did a press right. release on the national, uh, on the doula day celebration. Oh, good, um, good. And uh, I wrote a press release for us and put together a press list and did stuff like that. And uh, trying to, to figure, figure that way out. Um, 
I think uh, for us as an organization, with 6,000 of us now, I think yeah. uh, amazing. Yeah, big number. Yeah. Incredible. And yeah. and even if I look back to where I started, I guess it was um, a year and a half ago, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was in the fall of 20, I guess. Okay. And um, uh, I think it's changed a lot since then. There's so many more of us and, mm-hmm. I, and so many more Facebook groups and so many more you know, uh, different podcasts and this cast and this show and that show. And, and so scaling the growth is a very, very challenging uh, thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, Suzanne is one person and this is all her baby. Right. And so um, I, I love supporting that energy. However I can, we have, you know, I, uh, I was v- visiting my brother in New York last summer. It's right near where she lives. My parents lived there for many years and her parents live in Florida, right, right here where I live. <laughs> so it's, I've never actually met her or any of them, but it's just like our worlds are, you know, yeah. circulate in places. And so I just want to help. And I think there's a number of us that mm-hmm. have ad- admin skills, which I consider this sort of an admin skill yeah. side. So um, I'm, I'm, I haven't actually been doing that much one-on-one work with individuals. I shouldn't say that. I actually have two people I've been working with over right. the course of the last year, but um, I haven't done as much as some other folks have, but yeah. um, I but definitely- you know, your, your skill set is so needed in um, the doula givers. And and I, I think it's kind of amazing. I was at a networking event yesterday and I'm more focused on helping people get their paperwork together so they don't leave a mess because I was left with a mess. So um, I think, um, you know, she said, oh, well, you're not a, that's not what deaf doulas do. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> was, that, was that just the other day in one of the groups? Not in our groups, but in another networking group. Someone, someone said that to somebody in our group the other day. And, um, uh, you know, I was ready to jump right in and say, no, there's many different. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I just said to her, you know, we all have our specialty and we all help in that process. It's not to say that I'm not, you not, or anybody else is not going to do. There's some people maybe not want to do the bedside stuff. That's okay. But it's, it's the whole process of being, allowing somebody to have a holistic, peaceful death, really, you know. And, and that's so important what you're doing. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just at the end of the um, care consultant course. Okay. And uh, uh, I was doing that one together with one other person. We were carrying it on. I missed the class, you know, okay. the idea of being in the class every week that helped me be accountable. So okay. one of the women in my class, she and I got together and we said, well, every Tuesday we're going to get together and we're going to do this to get through the rest of it. And we did. And then she sort of went off to something else. So yeah. I'm finishing it on my own, but I think that's really where the potential is. Every so many people think, oh, they sign an advanced directive from the hospital or a form that gets spit out from the computer, and that that's everything that they need to know. And in fact, Suzanne was just talking about this the other day about how so a law firm asked her to come and talk about advanced directives and what they do. And she's going down the checklist of all the things that she's asked people about. And they're like, oh, yeah, we do that. We do that. We do that. And then they get to the part about the actual dying part. Yeah. And, oh, no, no, we don't do that. Oh, we don't know what to do with it. We don't, we don't, we don't, I don't want to touch that. We don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, I know. It's um, I had um, 
I reached out, or somebody introduced me to this lawyer who does estate planning, and we've had this conversation, but he says, you know, I've, I've never met anybody that what you do. And um, he said, yes, um, they, people really need a lot of hand holding, holding to do that part of that thing that you're saying that you're helping people. So I kind of tie into what he's doing only, you know, I can only go so far and if somebody needs more assistance, I have people I refer them to. I have two lawyers I can refer them to when it comes to, you know, trust and things like that. I don't touch that. But, you know, it's just very interesting. It's just like, I just say, you, we all like, even Suzanne said at the very beginning of the course, I think is that we need to start building a resource bank, our resources. It, it's it's one of the requirements in the course is you're yep. supposed to put together lists of different things. I, I have done that and I add to it from time to time. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important. I mean, yeah. And, and certain, depending on where we live, um, I don't yeah. know where you are, but you know, we have different uh, numbers of different amounts of various resources available to us. Right. Right. And it's not just people it's, you know, outside, like you were saying, government resources and all these other things that we can reach out to, you know, that type of thing. So tell me, Melissa, is there anything else that you're going to do in your <laughs> lifetime while you're here? Well, I'm sorry, anything else I'm going to do in my lifetime while I'm here? I think, you know, part of having lived, you know, so, so people say, oh, you know, you, you survived 20 years of cancer, right. so you're cured, right? Well, about 50%, 48, 49% of the women that have my diagnosis mm -hmm. um, have recurrences by 20 years. Mm -hmm. And some, there's still plenty of time left for me to have a recurrence. Right. So I'm still on medication, which is why I don't have hair anymore. I think. Yeah. And um, I, I, I don't, I think part of the idea of not knowing how much time you have or having a sense of your, the normalcy or not of your time is um, uh, trying to cram it as much as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's a little bit too much, but um, so I do do things for shorter periods of time. And then, uh, you know, like my son was rowing crew. So mm -hmm. I ended up doing all the communications and public relations for the crew team here. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm doing this because I'm doing making videos, uh, working mm -hmm. with a professional videographer, doing really great videos for the club. And I don't have that experience. Right. And I think it's important experience in communications to know how to do that. Even if you're working with a professional camera person, right. to know what all the considerations are. So right. I'm learning. I guess the yeah. thing is, I don't ever want to stop learning. learning. Yeah. And it depends on, on what it is we're learning. One of the people I've been taking care of is a very close friend of mine from high school. And um, she has stage four ovarian cancer. Mm. She's in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And she's manic depressive. And she has been for, you know, since high school. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and some serious mental health challenges. Um, has a wonderful husband who stabilizes, but he's exhausted. Yeah. Exhausts him. And so um, she was in the Canadian medical system, which is not the same as ours. Right. And she complained for a couple of years about abdominal pain and discomfort. And they kept flicking her off as a you know, woman thing. Yeah. And it turned out uh, she ended up with a, a lump you know, right in the side of her neck, a big tumor up here from metastatic ovarian cancer. Mm. And um, so, of course, she was just freaking out and, right. and spread to a couple of other places as well. 
so she had major surgery and we went to, and she was hysterical. And so I was on the phone with her or on FaceTime with her teledueling yeah. probably you know, three, four hours a night, probably three, four, sometimes more a week, mm-hmm. um, just trying to keep her calm. And, mm-hmm. I, and the whole experience, and she's doing great by now. So it's interesting is she, she became, once she got over the shock of the diagnosis, very stable in the treatment phase. Yeah. I think that's because she was getting so much attention with so many medical people, you know, just all over her all the time. Yeah. But I warned her when the treatment stopped that that's the hard time because you're used to going in and getting poked and prodded and people paying, asking you how you're feeling and how you're doing and everyone around you. I said, your hair grows back pretty fast and you're walking down the street. No one knows you had cancer and you have all these people fawning all over you and you feel like you're not fighting anymore. You feel like you're not doing anything. You're just sitting there waiting for it to come back. And that's the really hard time. And sure enough, she went into a pretty deep depression after that. But the one lesson I learned from that, and I think this applies to everyone, is I kept, it took me a long time to get her to really understand this. It's not about whether you're going to die or not, because we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. I kept saying to her, you know, you're like, you're, you're crying at me hysterically. You're going to die. I know you are. And so am I. <laughs> and so is your husband. We're all going to die. Yeah. And I said, the challenge is, what I think you're saying is you'd like to live a little longer than your 67 years. And I said, first of all, understand you're going to make it till 70. You know, even if it, none of the chemo works at all, you're probably going to make it till 70. I said, but what you really want is to bargain for three to five years so that the next great thing can come online that's going to help you get another five or 10 years. Right. I said, don't worry about 80 or 85 or 90 right now. Worry yeah. about the next five years. Worry about doing everything you can to get strong and be healthy and fit so that you can take whatever drugs they throw at you and you can, you know, make it to that next milestone because there's already so much stuff in the pipeline right now. Right. Um, and that's the hard thing. I think sometimes people are like, oh, I'm going to die. Well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Check that box, baby. Check that box. We're all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. But how well are you living now? Well, I, you know, to me, um, I feel like uh, in service to others in one way or the other, I get great satisfaction and mm-hmm. doing things that help other people. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I, whether it's through the, the groups, you know, helping the new doulas, you know, learn stuff or whatever. We have some great people that are doing that and I'm not really needed to do that, but I jump in once in a while. I jump mm-hmm. in on the conversation. Like anytime Suzanne uh, is in a meeting that I'm in and like, I usually go to the Wednesday lunch cafes and, uh, if, if nobody raises their hand, I won't, I won't let her have dead air. (laughs) I I always try to jump in and help her out and, and raise something just to get the conversation going. Right. And I think that she appreciates that. Um, it just, once it starts going and people are always jumping right in, that's fine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So things like that. And, um, and, you know, whatever else. So I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, um, you know, I still, I like writing about taxes, not because I like taxes, but I like helping people understand how the government spends their money mm-hmm. um, because we all want tons of stuff from the government, but nobody wants to pay for it. Right. And, uh, <laughs> free. I don't understand how that works, but um, <laughs> so I try to explain things to them that they can understand it. And um when I, in my job, when I worked in for Congress, the State Department used to bring in hundreds of visitors from around the world. 
from other countries to learn about our system of government. And they would often bring them to the budget office to learn about our budget process. And I learned two really, two really important lessons. One was the early lesson I learned was that we have a, um, a presidential democracy and most countries have parliamentary democracies mm-hmm. and they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about democracy as Americans, we're talking about a presidential system with a tripartite balance of powers that other countries aren't like that. They elect whoever has the majority runs the, uh, the prime minister runs the executive branch and also controls the parliament. And uh, it's a very different type of a system than we have here. Mm-hmm. Ours is a, a pure form of democracy that's very, very challenging to work well. And that's when people behave themselves. Right. And the other thing I learned is um, I had a group come in of about, I don't know, 200 um, Mongolians mm-hmm. and, and 180 or something, this huge group. And they were many more of them than I was expecting. So I had to go put them all into a conference room and we had to stand because I didn't have enough seats for 180 people. And I had a translator up there and I'm going through my, uh, my speech with them. And I talked about, uh, you know, certain types of things we do in our Congress, you have to have two thirds vote. It's not just a, everything's not a majority vote. Certain things mm-hmm. you need a super majority of two thirds. And this hand went up in the back of the room and I was like, yes. Yeah. And um, this woman said something. And then I looked at the translator and the translator looked at me and she said, she would like to know what voting is. Wow. And it just, just, you know, it was like a pin, you know, the air just went right out of me. I mean, here I, I am, you know, thinking I'm so cool talking to these people, explaining all this stuff, and they don't have the most basic concepts of what it means to be part of a democratic society. Mm. It has absolutely no idea what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, in most of those countries, whatever they call it, voting is, you just, there's no choice. You just go and you stamp the... <laughs> whatever it is that the one choice is that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, it made me stop and think that, um, yeah. So whatever little tiny part I can do in the world I'm in of educating people about how our government works and how, what an incredibly elegant, beautiful system it is that it's managed to keep our democracy running, who knows for how much longer, but at least for now, um, right. really an incredible, incredible thing. So I, I enjoy that teaching aspect of that. I love the kids. Um, you know, I'm probably getting up an age where I, um, I also officiate at triathlon races internationally. So um, I was in Sarasota at international race. I'm going up to Richmond to one in two weeks, and then I'm going to Montreal in June for a world championship event. So um, I, over the years, have met, met other officials um, from all over the world, and we get together every so often, you know, and we mm-hmm. work a race and uh, we have a lot of fun, and I love that um, connection to other cultures and other mm-hmm. countries. I just mm-hmm. think it's so important, and uh, uh, hopefully, something positive will come out of this Ukrainian-Russian thing with all of NATO pulling together. Maybe mm-hmm. we can see, as citizens of the world, how we need to. This this one is so different from a public standpoint. Um, when you look at wars, you look at refugee crises, which is really what we're watching the, for the most part, and you look at them and you see like all of these people that are streaming to the border in Mexico, what that's what America thinks refugees look like. Right. <clears throat> but when you look at the uh, mostly women and uh, Ukrainian women 
they are unbelievably well-dressed and way better dressed than I am. Yeah. <laughs> they're leaving home with one, you know, whatever's in their hands and they're dressed like they're going out to the theater. I mean, they're just amazingly beautiful. They're well-dressed. They have hairs done, their nails are done, their makeup's done. And they are, uh, you know, these are people who look like us. They act like us. They have uh, everything around them is, is like us. And I don't think we've ever in history watched a refugee crisis of this proportion with people mm-hmm. who are a mirror image of, of most of us, you know. Right, right. So, um, well, yeah, Melissa, um, is there any final words you want to say before we close no. off? No, I hope this was fun. And yeah, uh, I, enjoyed, I, enjoyed I learned a lot more. We'll have to do another conversation again. Hey, anytime. I'm uh, always happy to make new friends. Yes, likewise. Well, thank, thank you, you so me. much, Melissa. I'm so oh, inspired by your energy and ah. your your <laughs> ways of being and that you are so willing to just get out there and um, be, inspire others to keep going. You know, that's, I'm so well, great. You know, always, we all need to do whatever we can. I have two adopted children and, you know, you embrace the love of, of children. You embrace the love and to share of who you are. They're always going to be the product of two separate parents, two different set of parents. But, um, you know, whatever little bit we can do for for me, that was big. Other people have other things they do that's little, whether it's food in the basket at church on Sunday or a couple of pennies in the Halloween UNICEF box, whatever. Um, We all do whatever we can to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me today, Melissa. I'm so grateful that we had this time together and um, I'm just going to sign off and just say, you know, like kindness matters. We all just need to be kinder to each other and to ourselves. Thank you so much for joining. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.